Hi everyone, this is Dylan. I'm a research assistant with the Edit Research Program. On today's episode of our Community Spotlight podcast, I sat down with Joy Messenger. Joy is a passionate community advocate and a program officer with Third Wave Fund, an activist fund focused on gender justice and led by and for women of color, intersex, queer, and trans people under 35 years of age. I had the opportunity to ask Joy some questions about the role of funders in creating health equity and how evaluators, funders, and community partners can work together to achieve health goals. Hi everyone, thanks so much for joining us today. I am sitting down with Joy Messenger. She is a program officer at the Third Wave Fund. And Joy, we're really excited to have you here today. I think this is the first time that we've been able to get somebody who works on the funding side of things in for this podcast. Um, so I was hoping that you could start off by just telling us a little bit about the Third Wave Fund and about the work that you do there. Sure. Well, thanks for having me. I'm really excited and love that I get to do this interview with such a great view of, it is beautiful, of downtown Chicago and Michigan Avenue. Mm-hmm. Um, so Third Wave Fund has been around for about 22 years, and we are a national feminist fund that supports and resources young people, um, especially young cisgender women of color and young transgender, queer, intersex, and gender nonconforming young people of color um, to do activism and organizing around reproductive and gender justice. And throughout our history, we have funded primarily state and local organizations that are led by and for young people. Mm -hmm. And I have been at Third Wave since November 2015. Okay, that's really exciting. Um, That's obviously really important and really incredible work that you guys do. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about how you came to join the Third Wave Fund and maybe also what brought you to philanthropy more broadly? Sure, so I could could tell you the uh, like very detailed logistical story, which okay. includes being fun employed and okay. getting a really <laughs> exciting opportunity sent to me um, to become Third Wave Fund's program officer, which means that I oversee all of our grant making, um, our capacity building, and our uh, advocacy that we do with other funders and donors. Um, but the longer story <laughs> is that I, <laughs> I uh, started working in um, sexual health and reproductive health back in, gosh, when was it? 2002. So like 17 years ago. Um, I know I don't, I don't look that old. Um, Doing work in the HIV and AIDS field and with young people who were either positive themselves or had positive family members. Mm -hmm. Um, Had been doing, ended up doing that work for a while in addition to some medical case management in HIV and AIDS. Um, that turned into prevention and education and an expansion beyond HIV and AIDS to sexual and reproductive health overall. Um, And long story short, kind of went through a few more job changes, Mm -hmm. uh, continued to work with young people focusing on adolescent and sexual health, moved here to Chicago and worked with a youth organizing reproductive justice organization called the Illinois Caucus for Adolescent Health. I found that I wanted to keep going upstream, as we call it, in public health, (laughs) and keep figuring out how I can get to, um, you know, the best place to make social change, to create social change, and to figure out the relationships 
around power and like how people have power or don't have power. Mm -hmm. Um, And philanthropy is definitely a place (laughs) where people are asking questions about who has power, um, often not as much as they should about who doesn't have power. Mm -hmm. Um, But it, it seems like and still is a very interesting opportunity to learn about the relationship between money and power um, and also an opportunity to move from services to education to advocacy um, to funding. So I got introduced to community-based philanthropy, volunteering with the Chicago Foundation for Women, co-chairing a giving circle where members would pool their money and we would re-grant it to small LGBTQ-led feminist organizations and queer and trans organizations. So really believe in the power of communities coming together to redistribute wealth. Mm -hmm. And that's a big part of what is at the core of Third Wave's work. Yeah. Do you mind if I ask you to maybe get into a little bit more detail about what does it mean to be a national feminist fund and a fund that is so focused on, you know, cisgender women of color, LGBT women, uh, youth, when it comes to wealth distribution? What is sort of the the ethos that you feel is really important in that work? Yeah, so wealth (laughs) in the U.S., Um, just to state it very plainly and very directly, um, has been amassed through the theft of land and the theft of wealth. Mm -hmm. So all the way from contact um, with the first colonizers on this land um, and the first folks who um, were engaged in the the transnational and transcontinental slave trade, um, people have been using other folks' bodies and land um, in order to build their own wealth and build their own money. Um, And because of a variety of different tax laws that we have in this country, as well as for a long time the lack of tax laws, it's meant that generations of people who did amass that, did end up amassing that wealth, um, could pass it down from generation to generation um, without having to pay any income tax, without having to give it to the government, and then definitely without having to pay any reparation back Mm -hmm. to um, the families and the descendants of the folks that that wealth was stolen from. Yeah, and so that's kind of where philanthropy as we know it in the United States, like as a sector, has come from. Mm -hmm. Um, What we know about philanthropy also is that so many communities have been taking care of ourselves for a very, very, very long time. Um, Indigenous communities and communities of color and migrant communities and um, communities of folks who are not Christian have always come together with mutual aid societies and um, with other ways to financially support each other that don't fall under this large umbrella of like the philanthropic sector. Um, When we think about the philanthropic sector, folks often think of large foundations, sometimes community foundations and sometimes um, public giving projects. Um, But names, especially in a city like Chicago, names like McCormick, Mm -hmm. um, or nationally, names like Ford or uh, Soros or Buffett are very familiar Mm -hmm. to the way that philanthropy works. in the U.S., um, philanthropy as a formalized sector started um, with the Rockefeller, the Carnegie, and the Sage Foundations. 
they were very, very wealthy families who saw it as their responsibility to re- to distribute their wealth as they saw fit for the public good. So that often meant hospitals, mm-hmm. libraries, the arts, things like the opera or the ballet, um, but not necessarily redistributing it back into government in, or in other ways that folks could democratically make decisions about where it's gone. Yeah. Um, and so that's what most of philanthropy has continued to look like. Um, a lot of philanthropic wealth still exists within private and family foundations where um, boards that are made up of family members or people who knew family members or people who just have access to wealth in other ways are the ones making decisions about where that money goes. Mm-hmm. And how about specifically when it comes to the health of sexual and gender minority populations and racial minority populations? What do you see the role of philanthropy orgs like Third Way Fund as being in sort of promoting health equity and sort of and trying to change the nature of how people's health in this country has historically been pretty noticeably based on how much money you have, how much access you have, what neighborhood you come from, what you look like, who you love. Et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so I mean, something that is widely known in public health is this idea that your zip code can determine your life, mm-hmm. right? So where you're, where you're living and the identities that you may occupy or carry are going to determine a lot of things about your health and your wellness, as well as your, your ability to access different resources to support or not support your health and wellness. So third wave, as a funder, um, we fund across the country um, in, I like to say, in seven time zones. So that would be, right now we're, f- we're, we're funding all the way from Hawaii to Puerto Rico. Wow. Um, and we fund broadly under the umbrella of gender justice. So for us, gender justice includes movements to end patriarchy, transphobia, and homophobia and misogyny, while also recognizing that gender justice will only be realized when racism, classism, ageism, ableism, and all other forms of oppression are ended. And so when we think about especially LGBTQ health wellness, health justice, and health equity, it's dismantling the systems that have let those inequities uh, proliferate for this long. Mm -hmm. So for us, gender justice goes towards, but also beyond, um, legislative changes. It goes towards and beyond changes in um, electoral politics and who's in elected office to um, helping build communities, helping mobilize communities, um, and helping grassroots communities organize for themselves um, to create real change. Um, So that also, so that, so gender justice includes, you know, things like HIV and AIDS justice and making sure that people who are positive are the ones who are leading that work. It includes sex worker organizing and making sure that current and former sex workers are the ones whose voices are centered in the conversations about solutions rather than people who have no experience with sex work at all. It means that for young people, especially queer and trans young people of color, that they are the ones who are getting the resources Um, both individually and organizationally, that they need to lead their organizations and lead their movements because otherwise 
organizations and individuals that are already super well-resourced or already have had a lot of access to education and professional development and leadership development are going to continue to be the ones who are leading our movements for change. And that may not always get us the liberation that we're going to need in order for everyone in our communities to be free, right? So in order for us to think about gender justice at the intersections of racism, classism, ableism, and ageism. Um, we believe that young people are not just the future, but they're the present. And so we have to make sure that they have the resources and the skills and the knowledge that they need in order to be at the forefront of social change. Um, we see this so often in the number of fights for not just equality, but also justice. Thank you so much. That was an awesome summary <laughs> yeah. and a really exciting summary to hear put so explicitly. I think that's something that you said that really um, that really resonated with me is that unless there is really sort of profound systemic change, what you will see is these organizations who are already very well resourced continuing to sort of like lead the lead the fight for health equity. I think it's really interesting because you know we're sitting in a Northwestern University building, a building that is, that sits on stolen land that has amassed an incredible amount of wealth and. We're working in this research group where we're trying to be part of the solution, um, but we're also working within the system, which, mm -hmm. you know, maybe represents a barrier to that as well. So I'm curious what you think the role of institutions similar to this can or should be in doing that necessary justice and equity work. I think there's definitely a role. Um, you know, I think similarly, I work in philanthropy, and philanthropy has a history of being a really harmful mm -hmm. institution in a really harmful way for wealth to be distributed or redistributed. And I also think that there is an opportunity for us to both reduce the harm that is currently happening within philanthropy and reimagine and re-envision what the philanthropic sector can look like. I think the same is true for research. And I thought about this a lot when I was a researcher mm -hmm. um, doing adolescent sexual health research down in North Carolina and wondering, you know, what is both wondering what is this all for and being very excited at the opportunity to create whole new sets of stories and information that would lead to you know, ch real change for the young people I worked with, but then also for people like me, you know, I identify as a queer and bisexual woman of color as well, so it's not as though this work is completely separated <laughs> from yeah. my own life, and there are, as I'm sure so many people here at ISGEM, like, there are very personal reasons why I'm, I'm doing this work, yeah. too. Um, so, to get back to your question about the role of both research, but then also philanthropy in helping to create health equity. I think that there are a number of things that both of our institutions can and should be doing, um, some of which both of our institutions may already be engaged in. So I think it's really important to be listening to community members. Um, um, one, of the, one of the similarities that I see from my time working both in research and philanthropy is that often our sectors are looked to to have the answers. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is, you know, for philanthropy, it's because so many philanthropists are 
leaders in the world of business and finance and other forms of capitalism. And so people assume that like if they can make all this money, they must be best situated to decide where all of it goes, um, which isn't always the case. It is, not. <laughs> <laughs> it is very, it is a, a lot of times not the case. Um, and I think with research, um, both having been a researcher and knowing a lot of people who do research, there's this idea that if you have gone through X number of years of school, then well, you must be an expert on both whatever it is that you studied and also maybe a number of things that are not related to your current work. Um, I know I've benefited from that a lot myself, having a master's degree that people assume that I am a master of many things that I am not, mm-hmm. <laughs> simply because <laughs> I like have a degree that says I might be. Yeah. Um, so I think the first thing that um, both researchers and philanthropists can do is to take a step back and to understand and realize that um, even though we may share the identities of the communities that we might be researching or might be wanting to fund, that we always need to be getting more input and need to be always in conversation with the people um, that we are going to be working with. Um, it's one of the reasons why at Third Wave and just in my in my career, I have felt so passionately about things like evaluation and research being led by the communities that are going to um, quote unquote be investigated. So when I was at um, the Illinois Caucus for Adolescent Health, two of the big areas of work that I was really proud of were some of our youth-led participatory action research, where the young people that we worked with were the primary investigators in their own lives, rather than being told that um, you know, other folks, adults usually, were better at researching their lives than they were. Um, so we worked with them to create research questions and survey tools and interview guides, and they talked to um, other young people in their lives about how they interacted with their families around sec- around topics and issues related to sexual health and especially um, LGBTQ identities. Um, Another thing that I did when I was there was really think about evaluation, and I believe really deeply in a model of empowerment evaluation, where communities are not just being evaluated so that they can put that information into a report for a funder who may or may not even read it in the end, but they are gaining the tools so that they can evaluate themselves and ask the questions that they really want to be asking about their work, not just for a funder, but for their own reflection in in order to capture and tell their own stories. Because for me, that's really what evaluation should be, is storytelling and reflection. Um, And so many communities and organizations know those things, as I'm sure you learn a lot in the edit program, that communities have a really good handle on storytelling. And I think once we connect storytelling to evaluation, then it can help um, break down some of those information barriers that can uh, sometimes like put evaluation in this very small box of uh, like acquired knowledge. 
um, and can help folks realize that like they actually have the tools that they need. That sometimes, uh, you know, folks like us aren't necessary. Um, <laughs> at the risk of like at the risk of saying that, that sometimes uh, people already have the tools that they need, and they already have. Um, the expertise that they think that they need to go to someone else to get. Yeah. I think that's really well put, and I think there's a really important call to action in there um, as well. But that also leads me into my next question, uh, which you sort of hit on this uh, when you were talking about empowerment evaluation, which is something that obviously the edit team cares a lot about. Um, And we do a lot of work uh, as researchers and as evaluators with both funders and also with community organizations. Mm -hmm. And something that I think we've learned through doing that work is that sometimes um, expectations or goals can differ a little bit between what a funder wants, what a researcher or evaluator wants, and what a community member wants. Perhaps expectedly, (laughs) that's the case. Um, So can you talk about how you've seen that dynamic play out in the work that you do and any suggestions that you might have for how to make that relationship more beneficial to all parties? Yeah, so I think that... um, Well, so I'll I'll start by saying I definitely have seen that change. Um, I think especially on the funder side, um, realizing that funders and researchers often have so much power Mm -hmm. to dictate like what types of information are collected and what types of information are seen as important. And then the flip side of that, like what information is invisibilized and is seen as not as important. And I think that that can create a huge barrier in trust, but I think also doesn't fully get at the systems that like keep those ways of doing things in place. So for example, one of the readings that's been really important to me throughout all of my work, whether as an organizer or an educator or facilitator or a researcher or an evaluator or a funder, um, has been a document called Habits of White Supremacy, um, which is part of the Dismantling Racism, a workbook for social change groups by two folks named Kenneth Jones and Tema Oaken. Um, And it looks not just at like individual behaviors. I know that that will be a way to shut down conversation if we're starting every conversation with like you are a white supremacist since there are just there's so much there's just a lot around that. There's a lot around that. It's a <laughs> little to, bit everywhere. But to think about like white supremacy culture behaviors mm-hmm. that may exist within organizations regardless of who is in charge or who's making decisions and recognizing and being both as a call out, but then also being gentle with the fact that like, yeah, we were all raised in this. So like, of course, we're going to perpetuate these behaviors unless we learn differently. But now here's a chance to. Um, and I think when, when we think about evaluation and when we think about research, some of the behaviors that come up for me around that include the, the valuing of quantity over quality. And within that, especially in research, the value of quantitative research versus qualitative research. And so not just like the difference between types of data, but like actual like research methodologies. Um, paternalism or the idea that um, someone always knows better than someone else, which is huge in research and also philanthropy, this idea that like we know what's best for communities or we know what communities' experiences really are. Um, the binary of either or, thinking that like things can only be one way or another way. 
um, the idea, especially in evaluation, that progress is always more or bigger rather than um, deeper. So like progress could be deeper or smaller and deeper. It doesn't always have to be more and bigger. There doesn't always, that growth can look many different ways. Um, the idea that um, objectivity is real, which I think within evaluation um, comes to the forefront so clearly when we say, well, only an outside person can have the best, um, can be the best evaluator for an organization, that some, someone within an organization is always going to be biased without recognizing that there are many, many types of biases that show up in lots of different ways and that um, especially when we hire an academic institution to do an evaluation, that there's biases there related to race and class and education um, and sometimes gender and sometimes age that show up that we don't talk about. Um, and then also a false sense of urgency. So the idea that we have to move something so quickly that we can't include everybody in the conversation. Um, I think that Research, researchers and philanthropists can often perpetuate those behaviors in the questions that we ask, in the types of questions that we ask, in the ways that um, we want reporting done or want information gathered back. Um, and I think especially about this false sense of urgency and like not being able to take the time to include everyone um, being so key to that, um, that we don't have the time to include everybody in a conversation even about what it is and why we're doing it and how that gets lost so much when we aren't thinking about something like empowerment evaluation where their goal actually is to leave the tools and the knowledge and the skills of how to do it with the people in that particular organization and the time is taken to actually like go through that process of learning and teaching um, so that it's not as transactional and it's not as exploitative. Yeah, um, I think you touched really nicely on best practices when you were talking just now, and you talked a lot about resources that have been really important to you. And that kind of made me wonder if there are any organizations that you want people to pay more attention to um, who are doing this kind of really important work or doing this work right, and any resources that you want to make sure people who are doing any kind of research, evaluation, or philanthropy work are looking to when they're starting to when they're starting to get into it, but maybe also when they've been doing it for years and need to change their practices. Yeah. Um, oh my gosh, I suddenly feel like a mother who's being asked to pick her favorite kid. Um, which you can choose I, so many kids. <laughs> which I'm, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna just pick one of our grantees because we have over a hundred grantees that we've given either rapid response or capacity building or long-term support funding to over the past um, four years. But I will urge folks to go to Third Wave's website um, and to read about all of our grantees. Um, there's even a tab that says grantees, okay. so <laughs> so people can easily find it. Um, it's probably under our grants tab that has recent grantees. You can read about all of the organizations that we fund. Um, I would say about a third of the organizations that we fund are first-time grantees, may have never received a grant from anyone before. Um, we have organizations with budgets all the way from uh, $0 up to $500,000, which is like kind of our, our cap um, around 
organization size. Um, and we have organizations all over the country, like I said, from Hawaii to Puerto Rico and everywhere in between. We're funding in um, at least 38 states and D.C. Wow. Um, and about a third of our funding goes to organizations working with folks in rural communities. So... Um, I won't pick <laughs> just one, okay. but um, we do have a, a, a number of organizations that are doing particularly cool um, participatory action research projects, so I'll name those. Um, so a group called Urban Survivors Union, um, which is a drug user-led grassroots group in uh, central North Carolina. They're in Greensboro. Um, we funded them to do a photo voice project um, where each of their participants, um, which they are drug users, sex workers, they live in rural areas, they're people of color, they're women and trans folks, um, got a camera and took pictures of what their lives are like, and then they use those pictures to create a narrative and an advocacy campaign to win needle exchange funding and to... Um, impact drug policy in North Carolina, which is not a liberal state for drug policy by any means. And it was it was huge. And so the power of them being able to tell their own stories was super important. Um, another organization that comes to mind doing participatory action research that we funded is Girls Justice League, which is um, a black girls-led organization in Philadelphia. And they are collecting stories of young black uh, women and girls um, around education and safety um, and sexual health and using those stories to um, to advocate within their city and especially to city council members um, and are doing that to point not just to the fact that black people and black young people in Philadelphia are facing a number of issues, but to put a gender lens on it and say, well, black girls are facing particular issues. So taking that intersectional approach and actually working with Kimberly Crenshaw, who is the dear mother of <laughs> the term intersectionality within critical law research, um, to, in order to do that. And we have funded part of that work, too. That's so exciting. I feel yeah. like intersectionality has lost some of its meaning when it's used too frequently, when it's turned into a buzzword, and mm -hmm. it's sort of used just to mean inclusion instead of mm -hmm. what it actually was coined to describe, right. and an that's analysis, so exciting. An analysis of power and privilege. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's really um, that's really exciting. I'll come back and do a whole other podcast oh my God, on intersectionality. Please. We would love that. <laughs> <laughs> we would absolutely love that. Um, so a couple more questions before mm -hmm. we start to wrap up. Is there anything that you would want to tell a community organization or a community member who's looking to find funding to support work that they feel is really important? Um, what advice would you want to give them? So, um, you know, community organizations who are looking for funding often are already experts at this because they have been doing it for so long. Like, our communities hustle so hard in so many ways that actually, like, they are probably the experts on this. <laughs> but what I will say, especially as a funder and as someone who unfortunately does have to say no a lot, is that um, the best proposals are ones that 
are really rooted in an organization's values that recognize where they where an organization has a particular niche, but also has the self-awareness to know like what an organization hasn't what an organization can accomplish, but also um, hasn't done, and recognizing like partners in that work. Um, and then I think also like just very concretely being able to talk about like why your issue, why you as a group should be the ones to address it, um, what what's your approach for addressing it, and why right now in this particular political and social moment, um, which is something that I talk a lot with um, prospective applicants and um, off, and also our grantees about as they're seeking other funding too. Um, in terms of things that I would want to say to researchers or other funders... You beat me to the question. <laughs> ...is that I really want to urge folks to listen to communities and to understand the ways in which you may be funding an issue that is related to, so, to social justice, but that doesn't mean that our grant-making practices or that our research practices and protocols are always going to be rooted in social justice, too. Um, and the document that I mentioned around like habits of white supremacy, um, I would really urge everybody to read it and to reflect on where policies or practices of our work um, really fall into that. And no Knowing also that they will, because we live in a culture of white supremacy, and that doesn't make us bad people, but it also means that there is so much work that we can do to interrupt that um, and to make our work so much more accessible to the people who are hustling every day in order to have a better life. Um, I think also, like in our roles, like utilizing and leveraging our privilege to bring other people into the room, to bring other people to the table, to know that uh, we are not always the ones who should be speaking on issues, um, and to let those conversations be led by the communities who are most impacted, um, and especially for funding and for researching, like as much as we can, having that work be led by and for the communities who are most impacted. Um, I think it's also especially in a field like LGBTQIA research that we are looking a bit at disaggregation of the data, that we're looking to break down um, the differences, not just between like different parts of that acronym, but thinking about like within those, okay, like let's think about communities of color, let's think about disabled people and young people and elders and know that when we smush it all together mm -hmm. that there's so much that's lost and that by breaking it apart there's so much more we can gain and so much more that we can support within our communities. Um, when we look at all the foundation funding that is given in the United States um, if we broke, the, if we broke that down into one dollar, and then we took one penny of that one dollar and took one third of that penny of that one dollar, that's how much US foundation funding is going to all LGBTQ communities. Wow. So 
that's not breaking it down for race or gender or sexuality or even issue or strategy or type of organization or location of organization. So there's just so much more that we could do to complicate that and to advocate for what our communities really need if we knew all of those exact numbers, um, which if you want to know them, they're available at <laughs> uh, Funders for LGBTQ Issues website. Um, they are a network of LGBTQ funders that puts out research every year around um, f- around U.S. and global foundation funding um, to LGBTQ and other sexual and gender minority populations. Um, But that is one thing that I would urge research and funders to really think about um, is like, where are the nuances and where can we be leveraging our privilege and our knowledge and the spaces that, and the access to the spaces that we're in, um, in order to benefit our communities um, in ways that may not always show up in the numbers or in the stories that we're trying to tell. Thank you. I think that's amazing advice. Um, Okay, well, I think that brings me to the end of all of the questions that I had prepared for you. Anything else that you would like to say before we wrap up? Um, So one one thing I will say is that I love evaluation. It was a big part of the work I was doing before I came to Third Wave, and I really believe in evaluation, like like I said before, is a tool for storytelling. So I think that for me as a funder, for folks here at ISGEM as researchers, um, for us to just think really hard about who gets to own those stories and who gets to tell them, whose stories don't get told, um, who gets centered and who gets invisibilized um, is a way to help guide our work and is a call to action on how we can be doing our work better and in ways that are in service to our communities and in service to the movements of folks trying to fight for change within our communities. Um, And I think also rethinking what defines success um, because our communities have fought for and won so much and so much of it does not show up on paper and it doesn't show up on reports and it doesn't even show up in the mainstream media. And so... Um, yeah, I would love for the community organizations that you're working with to like get to have that visibility all the time. Um, and for the community organizations that you're not yet working with to like also get those opportunities too. Um, and success has been defined by so few people in such narrow ways. And so, that's something that I really want to see, like for our, for not just for our sectors, but like for our communities too, is to be able to have their versions of success be lifted up and shown as valid and as important um, and as real and to be celebrated for doing so. Thank you. And thank you for yeah. coming in today. Thank you for having me.